time. And uh, everybody so else will be in Matthew chapter 18 together today. To so if you have a Bible like a, open there with me. If us. not, there should be one underneath the seat uh, in front of you. This morning we're in our second to last sermon in your this series that we've you, called Jesus on Church. Between you and what we've been doing together if he the last few weeks you, is you have gained your looking in particular at what listen, Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew about the church. And the intent has been to um, encourage us as a church family to remember and be refreshed by what it is that we are seeking to be and do. Whatever you're here you today, you're not shall be bound on a heaven. follower in whatever you Christ. loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Glad Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about the, uh, anything that will be done the for them by my Father in heaven, if you consider where two or three uh, are gathered in my name, Christ, there am I. We would uh, encourage you to listen in today as we have a discussion about what the church is for. Thank you, Micah. And how the church has to do some of its more difficult work. And there are some ideas in the Bible that are difficult to understand. Here's a few examples. How exactly is Jesus both God and man? The, the Scripture undoubtedly teaches both. And yet, how exactly has that happened? That's hard to understand. Or... What is the precise relationship between the fact of God's sovereignty and the fact of our human responsibility? The scripture teaches that God is providential over all things, and yet we make choices that matter. How does that work together? That's a head scratcher, isn't it? Or maybe we should just look at the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, where did God come from? If God is the creator of all things, then God is uncreated. He's always been. We are, point in time we had a beginning. It's immensely hard to imagine a being who has no beginning, who has no end. And yet, this is the clear position of Scripture. There are ideas that are tough to get our brains around. Not every verse in the Bible is equally clear as the one, who, who, as the one that came before it as the one that came after it. Some ideas are rather complex. Some ideas are tough to comprehend. Matthew 18, 15 to 20 is not one of them. These verses are clear. The concept is simple. There's nothing here particularly hard to understand. These six verses are straightforward. Jesus wasn't fuzzy or indirect. And we know that the disciples understood him because the rest of the Bible acts through Revelation recounts multiple times in which this text was expounded upon, added to, and applied in the early church. And yet, despite its clarity over the last 100 years or so, particularly in the American church, Matthew 18 has largely been ignored. And this is quite unfortunate. 
Because these verses are designed, brothers and sisters, for our good. They are for our profit spiritually. So what I want to do with you this morning is simply try slowly, methodically, carefully to articulate for you what these verses mean. And I will encourage you, if you call this your church home, to be considering the degree to which you have been obedient to these verses. And even beyond the individual level, the degree to which we as a church family have been obedient to these or not. Let's learn together to apply these words with courage and with care. Even if we've been believers a long time, and have not had it as our habit to do so. Matthew 18 lays out a well-defined process for what we might call the discipline and discipleship of every Christian in the church. This process is designed to connect us to the work of repentance and restoration and reconciliation that comes with a certain kind of power, a power that's from Christ. And it sets before us the purpose that would be behind such difficult verses. There's a clear design behind them. And finally, I want to consider with you the plan that we'll need in order to actually implement these verses. Now, don't expect this often, and you may not have even noticed, but I just gave you an alliteration. Four Ps. Process, power, purpose, plan. Let's look at Matthew 18 through the lens of those four Ps. Church, if this is your church home, or if it's not and you have some other church home and you're just here visiting with us this morning, you have a job description. As a Christian who has been baptized and covenanted with a particular local community, you have a job to fulfill. And this job includes applying Matthew chapter 18. And so all we're doing this morning is simply taking a day for some continuing education. We're saying here's a part of the job you may not particularly like or maybe have never done. And so let's get some more added knowledge in order that we could put it to practice. So first consider with me the process that Jesus has laid out for us. Jesus describes a particular process to employ when one Christian harms another. Now, a few caveats that we must give here. Uh, We will, at times, inadvertently harm each other. We will be short. We will forget something. We will uh, misperceive somebody else and respond to something different than they're asking. Many times, a hurt between one Christian and another is a result of our own insecurities. That's not what Matthew 18 is talking about. And Matthew 18 isn't talking about minor offenses that we ought to just allow to roll off our shoulders as we forgive as we've been forgiven and we simply move on, never to bring the issue up again. But there will be times in which one Christian harms another Christian And it's of such a degree that there needs to be a conversation. It's of such a degree that the relationship could not easily move forward as it did prior to the event. 
So imagine with me John and Tim. I did this last hour, and there was a John and Tim, and they both thought this was real funny. So I'm not talking about anybody in particular. This is not well, one person's in trouble, and so the whole class is getting in trouble. Just by way of example, let's say John and Tim have had a, a, some kind of uh, conversation in which John has felt sinned against. He has gone to God with that in prayer. He's labored with the Lord towards, uh, towards the Lord for forgiveness toward Tim, and yet he's been unable to get there. He's forgiven the offense, and yet there's not reconciliation in the relationship. And so he goes to him, and he doesn't say, Tim, I've been praying all week that that orbit bus that drives around downtown Tempe would run you over. No, he goes to him and says, Tim, I'm concerned. I'm concerned that you may not recognize what you said and did. Maybe I misunderstood. Maybe I misperceived. Maybe this isn't actually what happened, but at least as it seems to me, you sinned against me in this way. This is step one in the process that Jesus gives us out of four steps in Matthew 18. If you look at verse 15, you'll see that clearly. Step one is what we might call private correction. If one of us sins against another, or as we think about other passages of Scripture that teach church discipline, if one of us sins in some significant outward way, then the other is to go and to seek to correct them in a spirit of gentleness. The correction is not to even the score. It's to restore. The correction isn't to harm because we've been harmed. The correction is to seek to love that brother or sister with clarity. Now understand, this, according to the pages of the Bible, is to be the typical behavior of Christians one to another. Think about other passages in the Bible that teach us how our relationships are to be marked by certain kinds of interactions. The one another's of the New Testament, as they're often called, are many. Scriptures tell us we're to pray for one another, that we're to love one another, that we're to greet one another, that we're to serve one another, that we're to show hospitality to one another, that we're to rejoice with one another. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of these one another's. So many of them are lovely. And yet, also, there are one another's that say we are to admonish one another. We are to rebuke one another. We're to hold one another accountable. That's what Matthew 18, step one, is about. Now, if you're in a situation where you need to go to another brother or sister in Christ, here's a couple of things that Jesus wants to be very clear. Notice he says to go alone. This isn't, um, I'm going to put on my Facebook, listen to what this person does, pray for me while I go talk to them. No, this is, I've thought through this prayerfully, and now alone, apart from anybody else, I'm taking responsibility to go and express care and concern for this fellow brother or sister in Christ. We're to go kindly, we're to go humbly, 
We're to initiate, not wait, for the other person. Galatians 6, verse 1 says it so well. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Probably 99% of the time, a conversation between a brother and sister in Christ, or a sister and a sister, or a sister and a brother, probably if we followed step one of Jesus' plan, and we did so quickly, we did so humbly, we did so graciously, we did so courageously, probably 99% of the time it wouldn't go any further. Sin is like, is like mold. It grows best where it's dark and damp and unnoticed. And when there are minor offenses we don't address with each other, then those things begin to blossom and flourish. And before you know it, the whole home has to be closed down because it's full of mold. Church, may we not be critical of one another. May we not expect perfection in our relationships. But may we take step one seriously. If we do, the vast majority of the time, the relationship will be restored, the issue will be resolved, and we can go and have ice cream together. Now, if you've appealed to another Christian about sin in his or her life, and they respond, yes, I did that, you didn't misunderstand, yes, it's wrong, I don't care, get out of my business, go away, have a nice day, then what are you supposed to do? Well, you ought to pray. You ought to search your own heart to make sure you've understood things correctly. You ought to go back to the person again and try again. But if over time the issue is still not resolved, then Jesus says to go to what we might call step two, small group clarification. This is where you take witnesses. Now, the witnesses are important to remember who these witnesses are. The witnesses are not witnesses to the original event in which the offense was felt. So let's take John and Tim. John and Tim have had a negative interaction in which Tim was sinful in a way that harmed John. They've talked again and again and again. It has not got resolved. Tim continues to dig his heels in. Then John is not to go get a bunch of two, three, four people and persuade them of his position. And then they all come in a kind of lynching to gang up on him. Now, the, the witnesses are coming as observers, as witnesses to this conversation. Ideally, they don't even know what the issue is. They've simply heard one church member say, I'm having a relational, challenging issue with another would you come and try to help us work through this? And so, if you're ever asked to do this, then you say yes, because it's the great act of love to do so. So you go and you sit and you humbly listen. Maybe John has misunderstood Tim. Maybe John 
his own insecurity, his own issues have caused him to misinterpret Tim's intent. If so, then correct him. But maybe, in fact, he has understood rightly. And if Tim says, heaps of poo on all of your heads. I'll do what I want whenever I want it. Who are you to judge me? I am my own authority. Leave me alone. I'll continue to do that. And if you gently, humbly, but clearly say, brother, here in God's word, it says this behavior is harmful to you and to the church, and it dishonors Christ. And you say, then what are you supposed to do? Well, if step two ends poorly, if step two ends with the person saying, yes, I love Jesus, yes, I'm a Christian, but I will continue to do whatever I want and refuse your correction in this area, then Jesus says to go to step three. Step three is what we might call church admonition. Now, this, except when a church is just beginning to practice these steps and hasn't for a long time, this is probably a rare event. This is probably not a typical members meeting. It's probably every now and then. But look at verse 17, the first half. This is what Jesus says. If he refuses to listen to them, who's the them? It's the two or three and the original person. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, Jesus says. Now my guess is a whole bunch of us are nervous. Not nervous so much of issues in our own life that are hidden, although there's probably some of that, but nervous because of ways we've heard of churches go sideways, ways we've seen a legalistic, critical spirit choke out the grace of God. That has, in fact, happened places. It's terribly sad when it does. But church, we we have no right to apply scissors to our Bibles and cut out parts that have been misunderstood and misused. We don't have that kind of right. Jesus said it. We are his people. By grace, we seek to obey him. And so if you're internal body temperature is rising and you're not in menopause, then pause and pray. Pray even as we're talking that the Lord might calm you and you could hear what he says in his word with new, fresh ears. Jesus says if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, in addition to making us nervous, I'm assuming some of us in the room feel like that's harsh. But understand, Jesus' intent is not public punishment. This is designed to heal, not to harm. It is, in fact, the most loving thing to do, 
if a Christian who's claiming Christ but denying Christ with their actions continues in a lifestyle of some significant unrepentant sin to not simply allow them to wander away or to go quietly into that sin deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper is the loving thing to do to address the issue. Think of it this way, by way of analogy. We have outside this big grassy field. Imagine after we finish in a few minutes, there's three, four, five, six kids out there. They're young, they're little, they're preschoolers, they're kicking a soccer ball around. Moms and dads are talking, they're not paying attention, not that this would ever actually happen. And the kids get closer and closer and closer to mill. And then inevitably the ball goes into the road. And you glance over to catch one of those children running headlong after that ball into the street. What are you going to do? You're going to say, well, uh, somebody else will deal with it. It's not my responsibility. That's not my kid. Or I don't, I, I don't want to yell. It might scare him. Or I don't want to say anything hard because he might cry. No, of course not. You're going to yell. You're going to scream. You're going to run. And if you have to, you're going to jump and grab that child and pull them out of the road. Why? Because you have a sense of the danger that lies ahead. A young child running across mill is certain to lead to disaster. Friends, if we would do that for one another physically, how much more ought we do that for one another spiritually? If we are running headlong into deeper and deeper and deeper paths of sin, chasing after a ball, the most loving thing we can possibly do is follow this plan that escalates the tension, raising the stakes to alert each other to the danger that lies ahead. Every person in this room who follows Jesus could find ourselves caught up in things today that we cannot imagine doing. There is no sin that you or I are above. God's plan to help us stick with Jesus is to follow Matthew 18. And in these rare moments when it reaches step three, then we ought not, church, close our eyes and say someone else will do it. Or who are we to intervene? We ought instead to run. We ought to save a brother or sister from getting run over. Ordinarily, the elders of the church would be involved in the process before it's brought up in a members' meeting. But understand the responsibility to correct an unrepentant person who says, I'm a Christian, lies not with your pastors. According to Jesus, it lies with who? It resides with the church. 
It is your job. I, as the lead pastor of this church, of this church or the other three elders who work side by side with me as a team, we have no authority to say to somebody, you can no longer continue that behavior and be a part of this church. Friends, that's your job. That's sobering, isn't it? Why bring the whole church? Why would Jesus say it's the body's responsibility? There's probably lots of reasons, but two are very obvious. One is that sin is exceptionally serious. Sin is nothing to play around with. Sin will get you run over. Sin will cause immense damage. But number two, sin also has a way of spreading. If there is significant, outward, unrepentant sin among a member in a church, and that's unaddressed and it's known, and this goes on and on and on, then what tends to happen is it spreads like gangrene. More and more and more people begin to engage in the same behavior. And so Jesus involves his whole church in order both to awaken the individual, but to protect the rest of the people of God. And so if step one is done and step two is done, step three is done, which is simply telling the church, in our case, in a members meeting, Tim has this issue for months. He's been pursued. He remains unrepentant. You don't need all the details of the situation, but we would say to you, church, if you know him in particular, Please pursue him. Call him, text him, knock on his door, talk with him about his soul. And everyone, please pray earnestly for him. If that doesn't work, then what's a church to do? Well, again, the church has an authority at this point that the pastors don't. Look at verse 17 with me. He says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. To regard someone as a Gentile and a tax collector means to treat the person as an unbeliever. It doesn't mean you're saying to them, I render you no longer a Christian. Uh, friends, we, no one has that responsibility or authority. Ultimately, God knows who's saved and who is not. Amen? And yet, what church membership is, is an affirmation of salvation. Do you remember back in Matthew 16, we looked at a few weeks ago, when Jesus said to Peter, or said to all the disciples, who do you say I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response was, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Friends, the church's responsibility from that moment on has always been to announce the gospel, to declare what God's word says, to invite people to respond to him, and then to listen for people saying yes to Jesus. And those who say yes to Jesus evidence it by getting dunked underwater, 
symbolizing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then they become part of us. They join the family of God. Getting baptized or joining the church doesn't make you a Christian. Only God does that. That's a unilateral act of God on your behalf. And yet, the church's responsibility is to affirm that we see the fruit of God's work in your life and you've made a biblical confession of faith like Peter did. Then what's Matthew 18? Well, it's the opposite. It's saying we can no longer with confidence affirm that you are a citizen of heaven. And therefore, we must not lie to you by continuing to serve you the Lord's Supper. That's what Matthew 18 is ultimately telling us. Throughout church history, this has been called excommunication. Maybe you hear it in the word. Ex-communion. We said last week that the Lord's Supper is one of the primary means God's given us through which we have this tactile sense of the broken body and shed blood of Christ in which we're remembering what Jesus has done for us and we're being reunited together. Friends, that act is a covenant renewal. It's a commitment of our life together under the cross. But if someone's saying, I love Jesus with their mouths, and yet is in hardened, significant, unrepentant sin, then they ought not be receiving that sign of being a Christian, because they may not be. So this last step, step four, is we can no longer affirm your profession of faith since your lifestyle of unrepentance looks more like an unbeliever. Now let me be clear, bringing an issue all the way to step four ought not be done ever if a brother or sister is repentant. Even if they continue to struggle with an issue. So go back to our two people, John and Tim. If they have this conflict and they work it out and Tim is repentant and he says, I'm sorry. I'll do my best in the Lord's strength by relying on gospel power not to do it again. And yet, inevitably down the road, he ends up doing the same thing again. John comes back. They have the same conversation. Tim repeats the same thing and he is sincere. Then it never goes beyond step one to step two. If step two resolves an issue, it never goes beyond that to three. The issue isn't, is are our lives perfect? The issue isn't, is the person struggling with any sin or not? The issue is when a believer sins, believers repent. Maybe another example would help. If Let's say a sister in the church has struggled with drunkenness and yet she is battling that. Drunkenness is exceptionally difficult to stop. If you have spent years and years and years turning to a bottle for relief, 
sometimes conversion removes the desire for alcohol, the abuse of alcohol. Other times it doesn't. Other times there may be a struggle for years and years and years to obey Christ in that area. And yet if this sister is repentant each time she's talked with and seeks more and more help and more and more tools, then it never goes past step one. The point isn't we cease sin. The point is we repent when we sin. God's people obey God's word, and when we don't, we admit it. This is what we do as God's people. And in that very rare occasion in which a church has to say to someone, we love you, and because we love you, you are removed from our family. You are no longer a member of this church. Please continue to come. Sit under the preaching of God's word. Listen to God's people as we sing. I'll take you to lunch afterwards. What you're doing is you're not severing the relationship, but you're changing the very nature of the relationship. You're saying, when we interact, we're not just hanging out. We're not talking about football and clothes. We're talking about your need to repent. A serious, solemn call for you to come to Christ will mark our conversations from here on out. And you are welcome to observe what God's people are doing, but you can't take the sign of ongoing covenantal renewal because we're concerned you may not, in fact, actually be a believer. When a church takes that unusual step, what's the goal? It's the same as it was at step one. A church ought to never remove someone in order to get rid of them, in order to say, you're too much work. No, brothers and sisters, if someone reaches step four, they're removed and later, as I in fact have seen happen, they return to Christ, they are saved, or they repent and return to their salvation they already had. Then what is the church to do? Not this. Not this. This. We open our arms in love. We embrace, irrespective of the scars we might forever carry from that person's actions. This is Jesus' process for repentance and restoration. This is his prescription. It's what the doctors ordered. And church, if we practiced step one and it was normative for us, we would be so much better off as the people of God. We would be closer to Christ and closer to each other. This is his process. It feels a bit intimidating, doesn't it? In some sense, you risk the relationship if you follow Jesus. And so as we consider being people who follow Jesus in this hard thing, 
then understand the power with which we do it. Look at verse 20, uh, 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Verse 20 is probably the most misquoted, misapplied verse in the entire Bible. The way that verse is normally used is to say, oh, I got with two friends and we had such a great conversation and we prayed together and I had goosebumps because Jesus was there. Now, was Jesus there? Yes, absolutely. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Who's the two or three? When, when you interpret the Bible, you want to first and closely look at the verses before and the verses after. You want to pay attention to paragraphs. I know some of us checked out. I was one of them in school. But the little indentation, and then it goes to another thought. These things matter. The two or three are the same two or three who went as witnesses. And so what Jesus is saying is if a church has to remove someone in this unusual situation, and those two or three have to be the ones to go back to that person, likely with one of the pastors, and say, we love you, and because we love you, we are going to tell you, you're running into the street, and you're not listening, and we love you so much, we have to say to you, we can no longer vouch that your profession of faith is credible. Please keep coming and hear the gospel, but you're not a member of this church any longer. If you have to take that extraordinarily difficult step, you do so knowing the presence and power of Jesus is with you. The same power that resurrected Christ from the dead is the power that can take you into that hard conversation. And even more than that, it's the same power that can awaken that person to repentance in Christ. The power for this work resides in the presence of Christ. Doesn't that make verse 20 a lot more powerful? It's not intended to be warm fuzzies when a couple of Christians get together. It's a solemn, serious encouragement that what you can't do in your own strength, you can do with the presence and power of Jesus Christ. Now, this power is designed for a particular purpose. If there was some way in which to talk with every unbeliever in Tempe and to give them a Bible and they would read it and then to go back to those same people and say, what did you find to be the 10 most absurd paragraphs in the entire book? What do you most think is ridiculous? I think Matthew 18, 15 to 20 would be one of those paragraphs. We live in a culture that prizes autonomy and rejects authority. We live in a culture that values independence, not interdependence. We live in a city that is all about tolerance, not truth. And those three contrasts make Matthew 18 seem like it is from a bygone cultish era, no longer applicable today. And yet, there is, brothers and sisters, an important purpose here. And perhaps we need to assess our own hearts as a church. Maybe it's not just 
the people out there that are prone towards independence and tolerance. Maybe it's not just the people out there that want to be left alone. Maybe to some degree, we too want to be left in our sin. But friends, don't you see? The grace of God is given to you through fellow brothers and sisters helping you walk with Christ. This is what it means to be a church. It means we help each other and hold one another accountable. It ought to be absurd to the world. It ought not to be absurd to us. Because we ought to see, and we can, by God's grace, see that holding each other to the truth of God's word is, in fact, what is best for us. It gives life and joy and light to obey. I love the way Joe Thorne puts this in his little book on the church. He says, the purpose of church discipline is not punitive, but restorative. It's not to punish, but to rescue sinners from harm. In every stage of discipline from beginning to end, the goal is to bring back a sinner from his wandering and to save his soul from death. Church, that's why we ought obey Matthew 18. That's the purpose for which it's been given to us, that we could be rescued and restored. Like a wise father who disciplines his son with gentle firmness, we offer correction to one another that we might grow to know Christ more and hurt each other less and display the gospel to the world more brightly. For some of us, this idea of Matthew 18 is as vast from our present experience as the other side of the Grand Canyon. It feels impossible to get from here to there. The way around is long. Have you ever driven it? It takes hours to go from the south rim of the Grand Canyon to the north rim. But friends, we need, by way of obedience to Christ, to take him seriously. So in closing today, I want to give some suggestions or a plan for how to apply this text. Without application of this text, significant sin will compromise our witness and will frustrate the unity Jesus has for us. And in addition to that, people will keep running in the street and getting run over. What's at stake is significant. This is down at the very essence of what makes church, church. So by way of application, here are a few suggestions for people who call this your church home. Number one, I want to encourage us, brothers and sisters, to get to know each other more deeply. Perhaps when you joined this church, you thought of membership like you do when you click on that little thing that comes up on your phone that says, accept terms and conditions. Perhaps you just hit yes, and you didn't even pay any attention to what the terms and conditions were. Have you noticed now they're getting a little smarter? Every now and then there's some software that won't let you just click 
you have to scroll to the bottom. And as though doing this means you've read it. (laughs) Church, it ought not be that way with membership here. We ought to take serious what the terms and conditions are. And we ought to with a joy, an expectation of seeing God at work, be about the work of fulfilling them. We cannot obey Matthew 18 well if we don't know each other. And so I want to encourage you, go out of your way to get to know each other in significant ways. And gather around Christ, not hobbies, not interests, not age, not whether you homeschool or not, not if you're married or not, not if you have the same kind of job or not, not if you have the same level of financial status. What unites us in the church is nothing but Jesus. And Jesus is enough. To the degree that we're different, all that does is magnify the grace of God in Christ. And so we pursue each other not because we are alike, but because we share the same experience of being saved by Christ. And so to make this specific, let me speak to the men in the room. Guys, before you leave this morning, go to one or two other men in the room and say, hey, would you get together with me later this week? Let's read back over Matthew 18 and just talk. Let's get to know each other. Now, can that conversation start with how terrible ASU football was last night? Yes, that's totally fine. But don't stay there. Press on through the uncomfortableness to talk about things that really matter. How's your relationship with the Lord? What are you reading in the Scriptures? How can I be praying for you? Is there anything you're struggling with that I might be able to walk side by side and hold your arms up that you might resist temptation? Is there any need practically that I could get involved in? Church, the the main program of the church isn't the stuff that's on the calendar. It's that. It's the organic web of relationships where we pursue one another with intentionality. Now, if you've never done that, you're going to be bad at it. That's okay. A child learning to walk is going to have some bumps and bruises. But mom and dad are still going to clap and cheer with every step. Church, take first steps. Ladies, do the same thing. Most of you have a leg up on the guys. The guys are going to sit and they're going to And you'll just know what to do. But press beyond where you've been before into greater and greater transparency for the cause of Christ. As you're doing this, and also as often as you can, number two, I want to encourage you to communicate clearly that you have a desire to be corrected. If you tell people, tell you are blue in the face over and over and over, I know that there will be times I'm not following Christ in an area that I don't see. Would you please love me enough to tell me? If you do that, eventually someone will do it. They might not do it the best way. That's okay. But they will hold up a mirror and say, look, come back to Jesus. That's a gift. To put it rather bluntly, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1 says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. 
but he who hates reproof is stupid. Church, don't be stupid. Invite correction. Invite it, invite it, invite it, invite it. Number three, and I'll end with this. Would you please pray for your pastors as we try to think through and navigate? How do we help Church on Mill put all of these principles into place? How do we encourage the church to do the work of the church? It has been a long, 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 long time since this church has obeyed this passage. And that is to all of our detriment. Speaking not as your pastor, but just a church member. I want to be part of a church where if I go sideways and I remain unrepentant, you will obey Jesus in order to help me If you're here today and you're not a believer, please don't misunderstand what we've said today. Christianity is not mainly about behavior. Christianity is primarily about belief. You see, the way you become part of the kingdom of God and his church is not through cleaning up your life and making yourself acceptable to God, but rather it's of recognizing your own need for God your lack of ability to rightly change. The way in which you have lived life stiff-arming your Creator. And to turn from that sin and accept Christ who came, lived the life you were to live, died the death you deserve, rose again in victory, and now offers Himself to all who will turn from sin and turn to Him. Christianity is fundamentally about the miracle of Jesus saving people. What we've talked about today is an intramural discussion. It's about how the church helps each other continuing to follow Christ. It's not about what you need to do to get in. I hope you'll ask somebody else about this sitting near you to tell you more that you might come to Christ. Let's take a moment to pray quietly, reflect on what's been said, and as you do so, I'm going to ask Pastor Tad if he would come and close us in prayer.